listening to the Mouthful of Graffiti podcast, affectionately known as The Mog, an open forum and promotional outlet for budding artists and creatives from all across the Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Brad Cox, not necessarily affectionately known as anything other than Brad Cox, but I'm here all the same. Let's see who and what we're chewing on today on The Mog. Friends, East Coastians, and country men and women of all ages, welcome to the MOG. As always, links for our guests will be made available in the description, and a song or some type of promotional feature will be tacked on to the end of each episode. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors, Vagabond Sandwich Company, Capricost Books, Musicland, Black Eyed Susie's, Double Groove Brewing, Baltimore Decal Gal, and Reb Records. Remember to love local, support local, and to eat and drink local. Don't forget to use discount code MOG. Pod for a 10% discount at Capricost Books. Everyone knows you can't stop by Main Street Bel Air without grabbing one of Black Eyed Susie's legendary orange crushes and a killer lunch or dinner. Black Eyed Susie's has been supporting local for a long time. It's your one-stop spot for original and cover entertainment and an afternoon or evening out with friends on their rooftop deck. If you haven't heard, there's something very special about Double Groove Brewing. It's a melting pot of personalities, ages, loves, interests, and musical tastes. There are hippies, professionals, rockers, folk artists, friends and families here. Throw in the most delicious and satisfying craft beer on the planet and this place is complete magic. They are tireless supporters of the local talent. Stop by their location in Forest Hill for a pint and a night out with friends. This just in, Get the Let Out, a celebration of the Mighty Zephyr coming to the APG FCU Arena on April 29th at 7.30 p.m. For tickets, visit apgfcuarena.com. First Friday's returns to downtown Bel Air on May 6th. The Bel Air Downtown Alliance is preparing for another exciting year of music and community in the downtown Bel Air area. This county favorite will run through October on the first Friday of every month. And Hartford Dance Theater's The Wizard of Oz is coming to the Chesapeake Theater on May 13th, 14th, and 15th. For tickets and information, visit tickets.harford.edu. Today on the show, I'm sitting down with Indies United publishing house author Tim Baldwin. By day, he teaches creative writing, film, and theater at the high school level. But by night, he's a cigar chomp and whiskey stern writer with a lot of books under his belt. We first met through our sponsor, Liz Decker at Caprico's Books, and recently reunited at Harry Carpenter's Fright Reads Annual Book Festival. He's kind, down to earth, and loves reading, camping, and live music. Join me in welcoming Tim Baldwin to the MOG. Tim Baldwin, welcome to the Mouthful of Graffiti podcast. Thank you. I am so glad to be here and super excited about that uh, introduction. <laughs> the horse or just the introduction? <laughs> oh, the whole introduction. It made me, I was like, oh, I am somebody. You are somebody. Now, is it Tim or Timothy? I feel like Timothy is your more writing name, right? Or... Correct. I, I use uh, Timothy R. Baldwin as my writing name, but my friends call me Tim. And when I introduce <laughs> myself at various events or to people, it's Tim. With the R or no R? No. No, no R. What That's, does the R stand for? Uh, that is actually, the R is Richard. That is my father's first name. There's a longstanding tradition uh. in the family where their middle name will be typically the first name of yeah, somebody yeah. else in the family, such as the father. My father's name is William, and my middle name is William. So very similar. Yeah, so I guess I could be a BB. I'm glad I didn't grow up in West Virginia or something, because then I would have been a BB, you know, Bradley Bill. Oh, sure, yes. Yeah. 
So as I mentioned in the introduction, you are a cigar enthusiast. Do you have any favorite cigars? Now, for me, I'll let you think about it. It's the Fat Bottom Bettys and the Deliciosos. So those are my two favorite. How about you? Um, I do like a wide variety. I get, I will sometimes go through um, stages where I'll buy a bundle and then I'm tired of them after a while. So I really do like just trying a lot of different ones, but I have a preference toward more darker Maduros, uh, sometimes Sum- Sumatra. I'm really uh, starting to get into the Leaf by Oscar. Um, that is, if you go into a cigar shop and look for it, it is a wrapper that is super ugly. It's a leaf. It's a cigar leaf. Hmm. And within it, they've wrapped the cigar. So on the outside, it looks all dry and crinkly and kind of scary looking. But when you open it up, you've got a fresh cigar. It's better kept than like the cellophane paper that they put on typical cigars. Do you have a humidifier at home to keep them kind of... Yeah, I have two small ones, maybe one day. And actually, I've set up my uh, basement now as a little cigar lounge. Uh, I'm. I've got to come over. We should. You actually suggested that, didn't you? You recommended that we do the mog at your house. I did, but I mean, reality, realistically, obviously, all of this equipment wouldn't transport very well. It would have been not hard, but more of a pain in the ass. Correct. And <laughs> most likely, my basement's not the best setup for acoustically for such a thing as this. There was a variety of cigar. I can't think of the name. Maybe you can help me. It tasted like a campfire. It tasted like soot and smoke. That's what it tasted like. Like, I just got it on referral at one point for Main Street Cigars, and I was like, this is delicious. It shouldn't be, but it was really good. Any ideas? No idea. I, I've never had a cigar like that. Um, <laughs> I, I typically am like, oh, wow, I really like this cigar, and then I can't remember what it was. Um, it was actually introduced to me as, have you ever been to a campfire and you're choking on the smoke? That's what this tastes like. I'm like, I'll take it. I'll take it. I like choking on smoke. <laughs> Give that to me. Where are you getting your cigars? Is it Main Street Cigar Shop or I, by that look? I know what you're about to say. I wasn't sure if it was you or Matt Witzel. You're not going to Main Street Cigars now, right? Correct. It's, it, I am not, for reasons I, I we won't get into okay. on here, um, so as to avoid any kind of other repercussions. But yeah, yeah so- um, just briefly, quick falling out with uh, Main Street Cigar and some of the ownership there. Um, but yeah, we've actually, I buy a lot of my cigars from Cigar International. Okay. Um, Is that some, online or? Online. Sometimes I actually go right up to uh, Hamburg, PA, and they have a nice bar in, in their setup. Um, but actually, shout out to Cigar Leaf in Bel Air. So they're actually, that? they are right beyond behind the uh, Chili's. Uh, shop the, where the shopping center is with the chilies. Yeah, yeah. They're over by the bakery. So uh, they're working on getting a... Uh, like next to Turn Up the Beat or between Barrett's and Turn Up the Beat maybe? or The cycling center next to that. Yes. Or at least where the turn cycling up the beat, was. Yeah. yeah. He just opened up probably about three or four months ago. Okay. Um, but he's got a fantastic selection. And last I went, I bought two bundles, um, Leaf by Oscar and Perdomo's. And um, it actually came out to be $30 less than Cigar International. Now, when you're writing your books, are you chomping on a cigar or is it kind of like church and state? Like, you know, you smoke those cigars to relax, not to necessarily get into a creative space. I have, like, I have, yeah. I have smoked cigars while writing. Um, if I'm typing, though, it, it's a little bit more complicated. Um, my writing doesn't take place in any really one specific place. Sometimes I'll sit down in our little lounge and I'll right there. Sometimes I'll smoke. Sometimes I won't. Sometimes I'll be in the office. Sometimes I'm like 
I can't get any words by typing it, and I will just do it by hand. Desktop, laptop, um, preference? Laptop at this point is, uh, I don't know, if I sit at a desk at this point and I'm on a laptop, I feel like I'm doing work. Right. But if I am sitting on a couch with my iPad connected to a keyboard, I don't know, it just feels more creative to me. I feel like I need the desktop because I need the size of the monitor. I don't know if it's just getting older, but my eyes, especially when you're looking at all those words, they're like jumping off the page. I, I've sat on airplanes and tried to type on a laptop, and it actually kind of makes me sick. No, that's interesting. I've actually sat and sat out. I, one time I did sit outside mm -hmm. smoking a cigar and typed an entire chapter on my iPhone. Yeah. So that really whenever the creativity comes uh, i think i would have a hard time doing that though like on an airplane or i'd yeah. probably vomit if i was trying to do that in a car there's also like that fantasy idea of writing where you go to your starbucks every day and you got your latte and you whip open your laptop and i guess time disappears for three hours i need complete silence i do too i can't listen to music while while writing i can't my um, add's off the chain right it's even hard for me to uh um, I would say it's even hard for me to really like, oh, I'm going to have a glass of scotch or bourbon and write. It's really, it just doesn't work that way for me. Same thing. I could be totally in tune, focused on the screen, focused on the story, and two or three hours will go by and suddenly I feel, I'm like, wow, I'm actually hungry, thirsty, and I haven't gone to the bathroom and I really right. need to do that. And uh, so I get into those those modes, the uh, the, and I get a, a real solid tunnel vision with that, especially when the words you've probably had this, where the words are just seem to be flowing. And you're sometimes not thinking they're not. About yeah. it. it's just you're just telling the story. But yeah, sometimes they're not flowing at all. And you're you just can't like, even find like words like the, and you're like, this is going to be a bad day. Right, exactly. And I've had that where I've where I've sat down and I've written like one two sentences, and I'm just like, I can't write anymore, or. Those are days where I might go back and revise something that I know I need to revise because then at least for me, when it comes to the writing process, um, I mean, I like the process overall, but I I prefer going back and revising yeah. more so than getting down and actually writing the story because writing the story, even with an outline, you're going, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I do know. I just have to find the right words to get it out there. Yeah. Um, and it's taken me a long time to to get to a point where I'm just like, it doesn't matter if it's garbage. Maybe three months from now when I'm looking back at it, it may not be garbage. It may actually be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe something where, well, I've got the basis, I've got the ideas in there, and I just have to make it better now. And that's the fun part. Well, I was going to ask you way later in this, but I'll ask you now, uh, what is your process? Are you a planner or do you kind of leave it a little bit open? I, I was asking Heather, you know, is she one of those people that just kind of sits in front of the computer and waits for her muse to show up? I was that way with book one, where it's just like I just sat down and waited for it to happen or hoped it would happen. But then I realized that if I just put a little bit of effort into outlining and planning, I could get a hell of a lot more done. So it's a little bit more front-end work, but it pays off when you're sitting there because there's nothing worse than sitting there and nothing. Right, exactly. And I'm, because I've done that, or I'm definitely more of a planner rather than a, what is it, a, a, a pantser? A pantser. Yeah. Heather's a notorious pantser. Um, but though she's actually gotten better too. But for me, um, yeah, I definitely plan everything out. Um, at least, I, I'd say I get about 75% to 80% of the plans done mm -hmm. for the outline 
Um, sometimes the outline are full full length summaries of each chapter. Other times the outline is really just this is the major event that's going to happen, and it's like one sentence. So it really depends upon the story. Now, how how detailed is the outline? Like, are you looking at like the whole book as a whole, like a macro outline? Or are you looking at like, okay, this is chapter one, and these are the three scenes that are going to happen in chapter one, and I'm going to describe those three scenes? Like, how detailed are you getting? I'd say that the outline is more like a, uh, tends to be more of an off-the-cuff, like... Abstract. Abstract, uh, uh, flow of consciousness. Okay. Chapter one, this is what's going to happen. Chapter two summary flow of consciousness summary of the story and all these ideas out there so sometimes like it's a full full paragraph sometimes it's several paragraphs before i actually and then but other times it is really just like uh this is what's going to happen this is going to be the conflict in this particular outline this is where the the setting for this particular scene is going to take place this is the major major conflict in here and this is my i don't get to cliffhanger because i let those kind of free form mm-hmm. um and that when i'm writing i typically put in a little cliffhanger at the end of every chapter mm-hmm. um because i don't know it's just kind of a natural thing for me to do i just end the chapter on some satisfying and i want the reader to read more of this so and i really would yeah. like the reader to be like i spent Five hours last night, lost all this sleep when I read Baldwin's book. And that's kind of fun because that's really what I like doing too sometimes. Now, when you get involved into a project, is it the type of thing where you write every single day? Because for me, if I don't write every single day, at least open that folder in my brain, I forget what I've already written. I'm probably more three times a week. Yeah. Um, And so what I'll do is I will um, definitely having that outline and a summary of the of the chapters is is very helpful, especially if you're not if you're limited. If you have a time crunch, I mean, I I teach, so when I come home, sometimes I have to grade, sometimes I have to. That's true. Sometimes I have to plan lessons, and so, which brings me to the point of like, my laptop is for planning lessons. My iPad with the little uh, keyboard is for writing. It's far more creative that way, and it it separates uh, it separates those two things. I think I lost the point that I was trying to make, uh, which was. Uh, which well, is, yeah. the frequency in which you're writing. Yeah, so three times a week. Uh, oftentimes what I'll do is I'll read the last chapter I wrote, do a little bit of editing with it, mm-hmm. and then I will start the next chapter, and I'll do something like that. I was a pantser. It's a pantser? Prancer? Pantser. Pantser, yeah. Um And then I realized that's not going to work. I mean, it kind of works, but you just don't have like the full idea. Um, for me anyway. I think pantsing works really great if you're writing a short story, something that's going to be three to 20, 5,000 words. Okay. Or 20, 20 to 30,000 words, you think? I, I, I was just guesstimating. Yeah. That. I don't know. I'd say something that you could wrap your brain around. Right. So three to 5,000 words. I have several short stories that I've written. Some have been in anthologies, some that I am giving away for free on my, uh, through my mailing list and so forth. But a lot of those have started with just simply a weird like idea, like a blurb that I read in a news article. Um, and so the most recent one that I want to work on is uh, the story. There's this there is this guy who pulls up to uh, a drive through and he shoots and kills the uh, guy at the, the the window. He pulls up, gets his uh, gets his meal, asks for more ketchup, and when the attendant there doesn't give him more ketchup. He just I mean, guess, pulls out a gun and just shoots him. And and so I sat down after 
reading, hearing about it, I was like, that is just bizarre. And so um, I love it. Yeah, it's great. I love it. It's perfect. So what I do is I take something like that and I might like go, okay, this is the ending of the story. Okay. This is the climax. This is this is where the story ends. And um, so I wrote down just kind of like three or four sentences, getting that idea out there. And so now as part of my process, I'm still thinking, well, where does the story begin? Does it begin the same that morning? What did this guy go through? Uh to get him to this point. <laughs> it's and even then, almost you, getting into Joker territory at that point. Right, exactly. It's like it's you gotta get into the mind of mind of somebody like that. And even then I could I could do something where I have shifting points of view where I've got even the 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 unknowing attendant at the window doesn't have any idea about what's gonna happen. He has no no clue. Right. And how do we get to that point? And then their two lives intersect at that window. Yeah. And catastrophe. So it makes me wonder what happened to lead up to that particular moment because it wasn't about the ketchup. Right. Something else was going on in this person's life. The ketchup was just the straw. The straw that broke the camel's back. It's it's what what set him over the edge. Yes. Um and I've had uh uh so a lot of the stories I've written, a lot of the short stories I've written that way and so keeping in mind like when you're writing a story whether it's a a short story, a full-length story, Keeping that end in mind, and it's definitely, I've come across some super intriguing stories that way that I worked with um, over the last few years, uh, some of which are appearing in A Crock of Sundry, some of which I'm giving away for free right now, some of which have not yet been published. Okay. But they will be published uh, hopefully soon. Do you like writing the shorter stories or the longer form? Um, it really depends. Um, the short stories, I don't write very often. Mm-hmm. Um and I really only write them when an idea strikes me, okay. when something stands out to me, such as the catch-up shooting or <laughs> such as uh, with a shot at Mercy, um, seeing just a blurb that said, man shot back, shot in back by daughter's ex-boyfriend survives. And again, those sort of things that make hmm. me go, what happened? How did we get to that point? A shot at Mercy actually started as a short story yeah. as part of my creative writing program. And then when I brought it to the writing group... Uh, they were like, well, what happened? And so what I thought What'd was- What did you do? <laughs> yeah, what did you do? How did we get to this particular point? And I was like, that's a great question. And that was probably the first time I actually sat down and um, outlined a story. Because I was like, yeah, I need to figure out what happened. I need to know how did this person get to this point? I brought up Joker briefly, but it, it is kind of that premise. Like we all know the character of the Joker, but how did he get to that point? Right. In, in that movie, they did a really great job of probably filling in a lot of the the subtext or context that was never in the comics themselves. Right. He was never just the Joker. It didn't just one day. Oh, I hate me. people, and I they all must die. Right. Um, <laughs> there's a process that gets into that, and the process itself is uh, the journey is sometimes far more interesting than the than the end point yeah so let's talk about the aesthetic let's talk about your style you've got great style get you completely off books for a minute and we're going to come back to them so let's talk about the mustache it's almost right. your trademark at this point uh it is one of the most well manicured uh squirrel tails i've ever seen <laughs> so how much time are you putting into this every single morning so at this length, uh, it really is super fast um i just you know put a little super fast that would take me like six months to grow well, I mean, the the this took me uh, 
once I once I knew that um we were gonna lift masks in schools and I had a sense that we're okay. gonna do that. I was like, well, let me start growing this back now. Yeah. So I already I usually keep a keep a little bit of stubble there or or like a nice trim. When I had the uh, mask on, that's what I had underneath. I'd grow like a beard out first a little bit, and then I would get to about a month worth of growth, and then I would, you know, start to just kind of take a uh, take a uh, what is it a uh, not a not a razor, but like a just clippers and just beard trimmers and just kind of get it down. So it's, so I don't never look like I just have some, I don't want to have like a Freddie Mercury mustache, you know, or I don't right. want to have the, I don't want, want don't want to have the, the police officer mustache. Um, so that's how I avoid that look to keep some stubble on there. And then when it gets to just about when it starts to do this, when it starts and to by this curl, you mean it's curling up the on the curling, ends. Yeah. yeah, right. I, I forget that I'm not on video when it starts to curl <laughs> a little bit. Um, that's when I feel confident enough to just shave it down to the skin. Uh, it looks fantastic. Now, are you getting into all those like fancy shave butters? Or are you just lathering up with like country crock? Like, what are you doing in I, the I, morning to make sure it stays? When I shave, I use the Cremo, Cremo, whatever it's called from. I think you can get it at Target. Um, but it's really the uh, it's really the the mustache wax, the type of wax you can get. And for me, it's been hard to find the right stuff. Yeah. When it's this, when it's the length it's at right now, I use uh, uh, it's the Pinod, the mustache wax. It's like a white substance. Because you need nice. it, otherwise the hair gets in your mouth. Right, and you need to kind of trim it up a little bit. Yeah. I know people who I've tried growing it so that the center center whiskers will grow all the way out. But yeah, I don't like I don't like the Tasting hair in my it, mouth. Yeah. It's I don't I feel kind of dirty, uh, just not not clean and trim. So I try to keep the upper lip right right beneath the nose trimmed down to the lip there um, yeah and then i came across uh um uh, some mustache wax it's a death grip wax okay um so actually i did a couple videos on my instagram page um tagged death grip wax in it then they re-tagged and then um later on they sent me a t-shirt and some free free goodies well, you are well manicured, as I said. Have you ever shaved it off completely and just look back at yourself? Like, are you one of those people where you shave and you look like you're like 16 years old again? Or yeah, I look really young. Yeah. Um, and my own students can't they can't believe that I am 43. Um, they're like, you're not 43. I I didn't think you were 43, even though you've probably told me that. Oh yeah. How? It's I usually I usually read I look and read probably about seven to ten years younger for most people. Yeah. Um, and so my students who are you know high school students, fifteen or so, uh, one of them goes, "You you you can't be forty three. That's my dad's age." And I was like, "Well, is it because I look younger? Is it because I act younger? What is it?" Right. He's like, "I don't know. You just don't look." What do you think teaching in high school keeps you younger? I think what keeps me younger is not having kids of my own. Okay, yeah. Um, and because for me, I don't have that dad context. Because, uh, I mean, when you're when you're a father, when you're responsible for younger people, um, you realize that uh, you realize that you actually have to be responsible to other people in sure. your life. Uh, you have to care for them. You have to be not saying that I'm not like a father to other. To my students and I some of my some parents of students have told me that they're like oh happy father's day I'm like I'm not a father they're like ah you kind of are you you provide structure you provide a nurturing environment to right. to uh young people 
you are for some of them the only image of what a band should be and how especially in no how pressure. you treat other people no pressure there i'm like oh wow <laughs> but it's different when you're when i feel like it's different when in the classroom because i i run it more egalitarian i set up certain expectations for this for the students uh-huh. um the only time when i actually have to do any kind of like follow through on discipline it's like when basically the kids are like challenging me i'm like dude i just asked you to put your phone away i expect you to put it away because you respect me right and why does it have to be and what are you going to do about it <laughs> right you know why can't it just simply be i'll put it away or i'll try to i'll try to do a little bit better if you were working in like at the baltimore sun where everybody's kind of dressed like madmen, everybody's older that i i feel like you could just naturally just get out of touch with youth and that would affect i, w- I would think your style and your writing and things like that yeah i think so and i and i think to bring it back to that full circle question there yeah i think working with teenagers does help me i think so to keep a more younger mindset because I, yeah, I am responsible. And the lingo, the way they communicate. How would you write, you know, your characters without that context? Without, right, without hearing them and writing it down and listening to it. Right. And, and really to bring home that point, I mean, I definitely have read a few authors who um, write for YA, but it's like, how could this guy be writing for YA? He's like 75 years old. Oh, yeah. Unless he reads a lot of it. He might read a lot of it. Um, I listened to one not too long ago and it just... The way the characters spoke, the way the characters acted, just didn't seem authentic to me anymore. Um, mm. And I read other stuff from his previous stuff when he was much younger, and he provided a you know when he was writing for YA when I was a teenager, and I read his stuff. It felt it resonated with me. Yeah, um, it felt authentic, or at least you know for a teenager at the time. Um, but now I'm reading, I'm going, yeah, these are just very flat characters who have. Uh, very few um, really authentic motivations. Um, they don't sound like teenagers. Uh, so I think that is important to be, yeah. if I'm going to be writing for YA, and I and I think a part of that is um, it's helpful for me to be with kids and actually, and I know that I'm writing for a very specific audience too, and I know the audience I'm writing for. I mean, you're bringing up a very good point, and that's that there's a lot of research that has to go into your books for them to be believable. If your character is in Ireland and they're a teenager, not only do you have to know like how they might speak, but what the slang is going to be, the turns of a phrase, that, that kind of thing that would be specific to that area. Um, if you don't do that, everybody's going to start sounding the same. Mom's going to sound like dad's going to sound like the kid and, you know. Yeah, and research is a huge part of it. So my research at this point is, at least for the YA series, is lived experience. Um, and then sometimes taking an idea and going, well, what would that look like? Translated into the stories I write for teens. Do you ever inject yourself into the characters? Um, Even partially? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say I, I've definitely – how can you not write as a right. writer? Um, but I i don't think I've ever actually had a character who I was like, that's specifically me. Mm-hmm. But uh, my one of my uh, – the the Cahill and Claude mystery series, I'd say that Marcus, one of the two main characters, is probably most like me. Yeah. Um, his voice is probably most my voice. But obviously – I'm writing in first person and I, and uh, his was more natural when I wrote Alyssa's character. 
Um, that one I really had to kind of think a little bit more and slow down a little bit more and think, oh, wait, I'm writing. And I caught myself a few times as I was writing where I was like, wait, wait, that's, that's right. I'm not writing Marcus. I'm writing Alyssa. And I have to go back and change the way I'm saying some things. Mm. Um, and so I caught myself doing that a few times. Um, but yeah, he's probably most like me. Um, in that's probably the way I, but I never put, I should, at some point, maybe I'll put myself as like a secondary third character that my, my students interact with. Yeah. I, the research interact with yeah. the, the research portion of writing, I think is often overlooked by not only the reader, but also an up and coming or wannabe author, because you have to know, if we're in New Mexico, what kind of grass do they have? What kind of wildlife do they have? If you're in if you're in Ireland, do they have cobblestone streets? What's the distance between this location and this location if you're actually moving the characters? It's a lot of work. Yeah, and uh, it speaks to the point that um, people oftentimes say, oh, write what you know. Well... To a degree. To a degree, exactly. And even when you do your research, well, technically, you're going to be writing what you know because you are researching, you become knowledgeable about the topic, about the area, and so forth. And there's hopefully a reason why you chose a specific locale. Um, and it wasn't just, oh, I want to set a story in Ireland right? just because. There's got to be some set interest in it. So hopefully it's something that you already know something about. Yeah. So we always do a fun questions portion of the MOG. I did bring up the Joker a little bit earlier. So... I'm going to see the new Batman today. Uh, my question for you is, are you a comic book fan? And if so, who's your favorite comic book hero? Oh, wow. Yeah, definitely a comic book fan. I don't collect them now, but I do remember growing up. And every time I went to collect news, my money for when I delivered newspapers, yeah. I collected money. And I always had a thing that I did on my way home. I would stop at the corner store um, and I would grab the latest editions of all my favorite stuff, a bag of handicapped fries. And oh, yes. those were the best, the hot fries. And then mm. I think it was like Mountain Dew or something. And I would spend like the next three hours just looking closely at the magazine, eating and so forth. I wasn't even reading the comic book. I was just looking at the pictures. The Marveling, first. At, pun yeah. intended. But I'd say that, yeah, the Marvel at it. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say, so I remember following some of the Wolverine sagas. I remember following... Some of the Captain America sagas, I remember, um, I got it a little bit into the detective comics um, with Batman and so forth, but... Have you seen the new Batman? I have not, not yet. One of my pet peeves is actually when people are overly impassioned about how much they like this Batman or that Batman. Batman in and of himself, does not have a lot of personality. Like, what are you judging him on? He's usually typically monotone. You might like the script better, but like... I can see people complaining about this Joker sucks, although we've had pretty good Jokers, give or take the one with Jared Leto. But to not like a certain Batman is kind of weird to me. Cat person, dog person, or chinchilla person. Oh. Uh, that's funny about the chinchilla. I have five cats. Um, okay, so you're a cat person. Three female. Or you're no longer a cat person. Two male. Oh, yeah, I'm still a cat cat person. Um, in fact, uh, I one you might even say I'm a cat whisperer. Um, in that two of the five cats that I have came from my backyard. Oh. Um, and so, and that just, uh, the, the most recent one, Eve, she's a black cat. Um, she's probably about a year and a half old. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, she just kept seeing her in the backyard and we'd be out smoking cigars in the, underneath the she, deck. And she was the smoking patio. them too, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then she started to come up toward us <laughs> and I started to see kind of 
cat hair on the patio furniture. Um, and then I started putting food out to her and she'd stay away. When I came back, she'd come up and eat. And eventually as she came up and to eat, she actually let me pet her. And then next thing you know, I'm picking her up. Yeah, because cats will choose their own humans. We've oh, got a couple neighbors sure. who have adopted indirectly outside cats. It just happens. Um, anyway, I recently had Harry Carpenter onto the show, who is part of the Charm City Ghostbusters. Has he ever tried to recruit you into the Charm City Ghostbusters? No. Well, I am bringing him up because you two are actually working on a book together. Yes, we are. Are you allowed to say the title? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, it is called Chemical Burns. And how's that process going for you two? Uh, we are, I think we plan for about 32 to 35 chapters, something like that. Um, and we have 30 chapters written. Oh, wow. um, the process has been super interesting. So we started out, we took probably about a month and a half um, to really get a uh, outline nailed down. And that was over like a year and a half ago. Um, we met down at some crepes place, pounded out an outline or most and, of an and outline. And a few crepes. Yep. Yeah, had a few crepes, pounded out an outline there, discussed. And as we were writing, we just discussed what we're doing, what we're going to go. So total stream of consciousness plus discussion, mm -hmm. uh, getting ideas out there. Um, and then uh, over the next, after that, over the next few weeks or months, we would work on periodically finalizing until we got to a point where we, we're mostly done with it. We're like, ah, we're still kind of a little cloudy on what we want for the ending. Mm -hmm. um, but we had a little bit of an idea. And that's actually typical of the way I plan my stories out. Yeah. I don't always know exactly what my ending's going to be. You want to keep it um, a little bit fluid. Yeah. Keep the excitement in there. Um, and then uh, when we started to write um, the story, it what was nice about that, we both had the outline. And so for the most part, all we, the first 15 chapters, we didn't even read each other's uh, chapters. So you um, weren't like, like reading his chapter and then writing your chapter, then reading his and writing yours? No, we were not because uh, when our characters meet, so we we're each writing two separate characters who happen to be following oh, wow. the same. It's very interesting. Same serial killer. And so eventually their, their stories converge. Um, and they meet. And so for the first 15 or so chapters, um, they sort of are within each other's purview, uh, but they don't necessarily meet up with each other. And so my story was not dependent upon his story uh -huh. until they really started to, until their st start, story started to overlap. Have you read the whole thing now at this point? Yes. So you know what's going on. Is it working? Yeah, it actually, it's working uh, incredibly well, better than I thought it would work. Um because and I've never this is the first time writing a story with somebody. Yeah, that's got to be weird. Um, yeah, it is. And uh, Harry's definitely one who I'm like, yeah, I would definitely write a story with him again. Uh, because when he first approached me, he's like, "This is the story I want to write." I'm like, I don't really write those kind of things, but it might be a fun challenge. Yeah. Who came up with that idea? Was it Harry? So Harry presented the general idea to me, which was got these two characters. One's a detective. One's a mm -hmm. investigative journalist, and they both end up chasing the same killer okay unbeknownst to each other and then when they eventually meet the investigative journalist starts to make things very difficult for the detective 
Well, that answers another question I was going to ask you. So your bio states that you started writing in 2014, which is now eight years ago, if you can believe that. Yep. Were you writing in any capacity prior to that? Like, were you writing blogs, poetry? I know Crocus Sundries is short stories and, mm-hmm. and a little poetry, right? Correct. So I'd say when I say I started writing in 2014, I'd say the journey began way before that. But really, when I sat down and that's I started what writing, yeah. uh, when I started writing in 2014, um, that's when I I actually started writing for my students. So um, I wanted to model the writing process to them. It hadn't, and the only kind of writing I'd really done up to that point from the time I left high school until the time I started teaching mm-hmm. was um really like research papers essays and stuff forth you do for college i didn't Yuck. really i did a couple creative things for some poetry courses that i took a a playwriting course that i had taken uh none of which i had remembered right. um or saved anything for um and uh so i started writing for them and what i actually ended up doing was i, I was like oh I, and then i discovered wordpress blogging and so forth okay um and uh, started to post stuff on there. And then the students were able to actually see my writing at that point um, and go to it, which I think has always been kind of something that um, once I really went live with this, I've always kind of kept this idea of like, if my students were to find me on whatever outlet on the net, what are they going to find? And what do I want them to find? Because they're going to look you up. Sure. Um, And so I was like, I was like, so whatever they find, I want it to be, I want it to be something that they that they can read and something that's not going to be scandalous. Not that I would really write anything like that. And if I were, it would be totally a pen name. Um, but that's not just not really what I would write um, to begin with because I don't read it. So why would I write it? Um, so and anyway, I started with that. And then uh, eventually um, in working with the Beller Creative Writers Society, which uh, Robert Brumall yeah. facilitates – um, I met him through uh, various means probably five years ago. Before that, I was just kind of floundering around, just kind of like trying to do something. Yeah. And um, and uh, the the story, the first story I really attempted, I haven't gone back to it in at all. Like really was, I wrote it um, just kind of from I don't know, I I don't even remember where I got the idea from, uh, but it was about a boy with you know certain abilities that he was unaware of and he started to see things. So kind of your basic, maybe it was at the time I was writing, it was sort of a lot like things like Harry Potter mm-hmm. where he's like, he doesn't know who he is until he realizes he's got all these abilities. And so anyway, I started to write the story. I made it more of a spiritual thing. Uh-huh. Um, and then I got to like 25,000 words and I was just like, I don't know where I'm taking this story anymore. I kind of lost the story. Which which story was that? It's unpublished. Okay. The my my main character was uh, named Willie Butler, uh, and he was a twelve year old character. Sounds like a country singer. Yeah, right. I'll probably go back, and, or it's William but- Butler Yates. I don't know. Um, I don't know where I came up with that idea, but it was really maybe it was like maybe it came across from like a blog that I had, and it was yeah. really this character who just kind of just was floating through life, not really knowing himself or what he wanted to do, and just things were happening to him. Um, and so the idea with the story was that eventually things would stop happening to him because he would learn that he has to make it happen to survive. Um, so I might revisit it at some point. This leads me to the Cahill and Claude, or did I say that right? Yeah. Cahill and Claude. 
that's Mystery. that's kind of your claim to fame series. That's Camp Lenape, uh, Shadows of Doubt, and Varsity Blues. Operation Varsity Blues, more specifically. I'm sorry, Operation Varsity Blues. Yep. I thought I think we talked about this before, but there is a Camp Lenape, Pennsylvania. Right, and there's a Delaware. There's a few. A few Lenape's. But not, they're not related at all. No, not to this particular story. Okay. Um, the summer camp that this is based on is one that I worked at five or six years, five years ago now. Um, and no, four years ago now, five, doesn't matter. Uh, and it was just one of those places that you go and you step on the campus and you're just like, wow, I feel like I went back in time by about 60 years Maybe a um, good thing. Maybe a good thing. that, And there's something nostalgic about it that it's like, oh, this playground equipment was built by the current camp director's father and the current camp director's like in his 60s. Mm. And so it's like, yeah, this has been around for a while. And the current camp director went to the summer camp when he was a child. Mm -hmm. So the camp had been around for a very long time. And that's one of the things I want to portray in this particular story um, because it lends itself to being there's a certain culture, a certain expectation. And sort of a certain, like, this is the way we do things and we will never change. Um, but then it also lends itself be, well to people hiding. Is it kind of like The Village by M. Night Shyamalan or? No, it's not that type of story. Okay, not a cult kind of thing or? No, no, I wouldn't say it's a cult, so to speak. But there's definitely a very ingrained culture within the summer okay. camp. Um, kids go to that. They have fun until. They don't. Until they don't. <laughs> Until they don't, and a girl goes missing in this particular oh. story, and that's the not to give it away. Because that's the I'm reader's not, digest. But version. that's the that's on the that's on the blurb. So the the basic idea is that Marks and Alyssa are anticipating a really fun summer, and then a girl goes missing. Okay, one of the things you're very good at is marketing your books. You did bring your books with you today. I did. Which books do you have with you, and where can we find them? So I have A Crock of Sundries in here, which is volume one of A Crock of Sundries. I short stories and poems. Short stories, poems, and a couple plays. Cool. Um, and that actually... Like that, uh, play scripts or... Yeah, scripts, yeah. Oh, nice. So that one actually is... Uh, this is uh, a collection of stuff that I wrote before my creative writing program that I did, and then more recent writings. And then, of course, I have Camp Lenape, Shadows of the Operation Varsity Blues, and then A Shot at Mercy. Okay. Um, so these five stories, plus any other stories that are, any other writings I'm in. We're, we are missing one, though. I want to know about part four of the trilogy, which would be the uh, A Bizarre Christmas. A Bizarre Christmas. So bizarre meaning B-A-Z-A-A-R, for those of you who are listening, can't uh, picture, not bizarre, but bizarre. Uh, so that is just an ebook. Okay. Um, it is available is it a prequel or no it is a thing that i wrote between i so i was basically i wrote it for uh the publishing house indies okay. united publishing house uh they were looking for christmas stories christmas themed stories for their uh quarterly literary magazine and so i was like okay i'm going to write a story about this so then i uh tagged it in as uh 2.5, two and a half, story two and a half. Okay. Because so, it's really just like, it's, I think it's like three to 5,000 words. I can't remember. So exactly you're not branching this off into become a series. It's just going to be the trilogy, but this maybe some offshoots. Yeah, I might write a few short stories. So that is actually on Amazon as well as uh, all of the stories are available on Amazon and really wherever books are sold. But um, 
You've even gotten uh, in Barnes and Nobles. Correct, Barnes and Nobles and White Marsh. I've got the books in. Uh... Now they they won't mess with me because I I'm strictly KDP, right. and I need to figure out how to get around that so I can get my books there. Because when I first got Children of the Program out, it was at Barnes and Nobles, and I did do signings. And then when the second book came out, they're like, "We're not allowed to carry that anymore." And I'm like, "Okay." And I think you have to go through what service? Uh, Ingram Sparks is the is the main service. Can to you go do through. that if you've already been published on the other sites? Yes, you can. So you um, could have a book published through Amazon and Ingram. Yeah. So Ingram, what Ingram Sparks does is Ingram Sparks will will push it out to all of their channels, um, one of which is of course Amazon. And so, um, basically, it's, it doesn't create a duplicate copy of it as long as you're using the same ISBN number. Um, the only time you might run into some problems is if. Uh, I guess as if you do have a different ISBN number, then you create duplicate copies. Or if you use KDP's free ISBN number, okay. that can only be used through Amazon only because Amazon technically is the publisher. So technically, you need to get like like if it was a song, a new ISRC code. Correct. But on the listings, like if you go to Amazon and search – Will it marry the books, or are they going to show up as two separate listings? Yeah, it'll it'll if it's the same ISBN number, it'll marry the books together. It won't show up as two separate listings. But if it's not, like so, if I, it's I, okay, so that's a good question too, because Camp Lenape was first published by uh, Michael Ter- Terrence Publishing hmm. through Amazon, and so there is, and so what kind of happens with that is, I got it unpublished. Um, it's still available; people could still buy it. But I got it unpublished, and um, it uh, it still shows up on Amazon, and it does – Amazon's algorithms uh, connect uh, my name with the title and see it as the same title, just a different edition. And uh, so when you do republish something, let's say you decide to republish uh, – Children of the Program. Children of the Program. When you republish it – with a new ISBN, your best bet is to publish that. It is. It comes out second down to edition. Be a, it's a second edition, even if you made no changes to it. Okay. But if you've ever wanted to make changes to it, if you're going to republish it to Ingram Sparks, that would be a great time to make changes to it, because then you could say revised and updated. Now you're bringing up something else that I was going to ask you. Yeah. Do you look back at your first books and think, Jesus Christ? This is bad. I've got to rewrite this because I kind of – I don't think that the first one's bad. It'll always be special to me. Right. But it, there is that part of me. It's like you could go back and fix it now. There's nothing that says that that has to be the final forever. Correct. Uh, I'd say that – and this is not the you know, not to fear anybody away from Camp Lenape because everyone who's read it for the most part have really enjoyed Camp Lenape. Um, and one of the things when I, when I republished it through Indies United Publishing House that I kind of wish I did now – was I wish I just went back and did some revised revision and expansions to it. Yeah. To enrich the story, to um, do a few things with POV in it that, because um, I have it starting from in the prologue from third person, then eventually it's first person, Marcus uh, switching to Alyssa. Now on the recordings, I have. Two different people reading it. Sure, uh, a male and a woman, a man and a woman, and they do a great job of reading. I had them read the the chapters that were, even though they were in third person, um, I had them read. It was mainly like, for example, chapter one is mainly focused on Marcus. Chapter two is mainly focused on Alyssa. So I had the re- I had them read their parts, um, not in first person, but in third person. So when you listen to the audio recording and you once you get into the story, you're not going to notice it. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'd say that I would do that. I, I might, I might revise it so it is strictly in first person, um, and I might, ex- I might expand other parts of it. But again, it's a really great story. There's uh, on Amazon. There's over sixty nine reviews with an average of four and a half stars. Um, That's a lot of reviews, man. Yeah, that is a lot of reviews. Um, and uh, and and. Was there any like Facebook marketing to get those reviews? There's a lot of that's a good question. So I have like uh, with the children of the program, I've got like 29 reviews. But I also when the you put the first book out, you're asking every single person that buys it to leave a review. I right. was so so there are places like that really specialize in getting your book into the hands of readers who I'd say maybe. A much higher percentage of those readers will actually review the book. So there's a there's um uh, for example, Books Go Social is a website. Now they're they're about two hundred bucks, but they tweet it out every day for like forty days. They um hmm. and they run your, your and you make it sales too. I hope yeah, and they run your Amazon uh, marketing ads. Uh, they put it on um, NetGalley. Uh, all of which would I would say that the value in that is definitely worth it for somebody who's like I really just need to, you know, breathe new life into this book that I had that I published three years ago, um, because it will <clears throat> result in it does result in reviews. It does result in, of course, like like you said, um, sales as well as of course commission. Do you make or your royalties? Do you necessarily make it up? Probably not monetarily, but you do make it up in in the overall ranking on Amazon or the advertisements that you have and so forth. I mean, we're talking Amazon mostly because Amazon is probably is where most people go right. and buy. But you're also books. Capricos books. Yeah. You, you know, there's a lot of local shops that you're in. Yeah. I'm in uh, Washington street books, Capricos books. Um, I'm also uh, What's that place down there off Harford road. You did a book signing there with Harry. Oh, what did, what was that place? I can't um, remember. Down, um, uh, Ukazoo's gone. Yeah, they're gone. They closed up. Greetings and readings is gone. Greetings and readings. That was is a gone. hard loss, man. Oh, uh, we're down at a uh, uh, Cremudgeon Books. That's down what in, it was, Cremudgeon. Uh, Marley Station Mall. Is it no? It's not. Is it Marley Station? No. Yeah, it's Glen. I thought it was Glen Burnie. Uh, whatever the mall is called. Well, maybe it is. It might be Marley Station, but but uh, yeah, I mean, the books are in several places, and of course, if somebody were to walk into their local bookstore, they can always order it. Um, directly. That's always a great way of doing things. But yeah, that, I mean, that does require intentionality on the part of the customer, the reader who's like, I really want to support a local bookstore. Well, then head on over. Uh, but when you are local, you can easily say, if you don't have books with you, if your books are like in... Oh, I'm also in uh, The Pal on the Page in Elkton. Okay. Um, I'll be doing a book signing there, I think in June, and their books are there. So it is nice to be able to say, even if you're... Like if I were, let's say, walking through Habit Grace and someone's like... Oh, you're an author. Where can I get your books? I'm like, you can just go to right to that store and grab them. They're already signed. Yeah. Or wherever, whatever it may be. Because I mean, realistically, are we carrying books with us all the time? No. No. Um, but I try to carry some in my car occasionally. All right. So for a final point, uh, give a piece of advice to an aspiring writer, maybe one of your students or somebody that would like to write a book, but maybe feels like the process is a little bit overwhelming or even inaccessible. I'd say just take it one day at a time, you know. Um, How do you eat the elephant? 
how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time? That's right. <laughs> um, and so writing, don't try to, don't put the, uh, to use another cliche, don't put the cart before the horse, you know. Um, I'm going to be putting the horse sound effect right there. <laughs> yep, there you go. Um, and and just take it one day at a time. Um, know that one day it'll be finished and it'll feel great. Yeah. Um, and as you're writing, just, just enjoy, I, I really am just like, enjoy the process. Um, because a lot of people don't, they get into the process and they're overwhelmed and they start hating it. Right. And it is, it, and, and when you're, and when you're thinking, I just got to get this done, um, and you start to avoid the process and start, if you're like taking those days and going, I'm not going to write today, I'm going to, I'm going to research book covers. Well, that's, that's way down the line. You don't need a book cover until you're, you're in your final draft, um, and you're ready to publish it. Right. Because I mean, a book cover is going to take an artist maybe, you know, two or three weeks, two or three weeks, sometimes or more. or more, depending on how you're doing. It. It's going to take a while, and and when you get to that point, and your book is done, you're getting your book cover done uh, done by an artist. Those two or three weeks are great is a great time for you to sit down and actually write the blurb for your book, because um, that's going to take you a little bit of time to write. Because that I think is probably the hardest part. How do I take let's say 300 pages and condense it into 250 words. That's hard to do. I would also say it seems obvious as hell, but read the damn book. Like your own book? Yes. Read it. Read it before you put it out there. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, I, as the, as the joke goes, the best way to figure out, like the best way to find your reading, your mistakes in your book is to publish it put it out there and then at random right, flip right. through the page and you're like, oh, typo there, oh, typo there. And Isn't it weird how different lenses, mm-hmm. you can see different errors. I could stare at the computer screen, but then when I have a hard copy right in front of me, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, all the errors are jumping off the page. I'm like, Jesus, Brad, how? what is wrong with you? Right. Print it out, read it over, or yeah. if you don't do that at the very least... Um, read it in have different somebody, formats, maybe. Have somebody else do it. Yeah. Have somebody else who's really good at it and then you'll pick up stuff that that you don't otherwise will see. You won't otherwise see, but you're absolutely right. Reading on screen, you don't catch everything. Um, even if you run it through a program like Grammarly, which uh, I use, Harry use, a lot of people use, I, I highly recommend it because it's going to pick up on things that you may not notice and you can take care of most of the issues right in there. Yeah. But do not ever just go accept all because it might change things to what you don't intend. Right. And you have to, like you said, read it. Read it. Make sure it is exactly what you want to say, yeah, and how you want to say. It. And there are no there are no issues in it. Well, Tim, I appreciate you coming on to the Mouthful of Graffiti podcast. You are a very interesting person. You've got a fantastic mustache. I hope that after this podcast, you go home, you fill up your glass of whiskey, you sit down with your cats, you have a nice Cuban or maybe not Cuban cigar, and have a great Sunday afternoon. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here.